You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. In a lot of cases, it's arguably, and this is going to be a little controversial, but it's you know arguably not responsible for government to be putting sensitive data in a system that's run by two people, right? So there is a there is a sort of threshold where you want to make sure that these organizations that are entrusted, you know, with the safety of this information, uh, when when it is sensitive, to you know have a maturity that you know we think that they will you know take protection of that data seriously and you know have adequate protections against cyber attacks and these kinds of things. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Like never before, governments around the world have really shed some of the stigmas that have been thrust on them for decades. We've even highlighted several programs that have been doing just that on this show, including Kessel Run, the Army Software Factory, and also 18F within GSA. And another group that's driving a lot of innovative changes is the Technology Transformation Service, or TTS. This group, which also resides within GSA, applies modern methodologies and technologies to improve the lives of citizens and public servants. They're working to help agencies make their services more accessible, efficient, and effective with more modern applications, platforms, processes, personnel, and software solutions. This group was really effective in allowing the federal government to not only survive the pandemic, but pivot effectively into the new normal. When everything started, they contributed about 20% of their talent pool to tackle rapid federal agency pandemic response. Those efforts included vital assistance to the Small Business Administration to support the Paycheck Protection Program and work with the Department of Health and Human Services to set up telehealth.hhs.gov to provide resources to citizens. TTS also processed more than 1,000 FedRAMP reusability requests, worked to meet spiking demand on USA.gov website, and moved contact centers to telework status amid swelling call volumes. And to get a deeper perspective of how they're continuing to approach the next normal in new and innovative ways, I'm going to be speaking with Aiden Feldman. Aiden is the Director of Technology at TTS, and in his role, he supports the programs and people that transform how government is using technology. Before he joined TTS, Aiden worked at the digital service teams at 18F and Census XD. Aiden, welcome to the show. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And one of the things I love to do on this show is bring attention to some of the more innovative areas in government. And I think TTS certainly certainly fits that mold. For those not familiar, can you talk a little bit about the mission of TTS and specifically what your role is in driving innovation within government? Absolutely. So TTS aims to use technology to improve public's experience with government. Um, We're a team of 350 and we help other agencies make their services more accessible, efficient, and effective. So in practice, uh, because it's composed of a bunch of different teams, TTS provides consulting services, also, you know, guidance through, you know, sort of written medium and, and training and that kind of thing, as well as like platforms and other services, both to agencies and then others to the public, like through USA.gov. Excellent. And in looking at your mission, 
I mean, it's pretty straightforward and you're looking to design and deliver a digital government with and for the American public. When you say with, what do you mean with? Yeah. So user research is a big part of what TTS does. Um, I think too many projects in government are just driven by the government stakeholders and don't have a good enough sense of what you know the user's pain points are or what you know they'd really like to see out of it. So the with is both working with people in agencies who are on the ground, you know the people that are dealing with these systems and processes every day, as well as you know those on the outside who might be affected or interacting with them. So what are some of the ways that you guys are kind of gaining some of these insights? Yeah, so I mean, user research process um, is very hands-on. So often it will be interviews and uh, you know, sort of sessions where they're either clicking through a sort of mock-up uh, or wireframe, you know, uh, or some other kind of prototype of what a system might be, um, or using an existing system to find flaws, or just talking about sort of their background and what you know their concerns are, and you know what's hard for them in whatever they're trying to do and then seeing if that can be addressed. So it's a lot of uh, qualitative research. Uh, there's some quantitative with the you know, analytics for an existing system or that kind of thing, but I tend to see that the qualitative bears more fruit for us. So then what are some of the biggest challenges you're seeing right now then as you're working with, uh, with these groups to gain these insights? Yeah, so my team is the technology portfolio. And so my focus specifically is very internal within TTS. So we deal with things like uh, security compliance and software licensing and policies around technology and this kind of thing. So our largest pain points that we deal with for launching and using technology at TTS is security compliance. Um, For those who aren't aware, any technology system in government needs to have authority to operate or the ATO uh, letter. And there's a big process that leads up to, you know, sort of getting a signature of good to go. And this can be like hundreds of pages of paperwork and range from questions like what kind of encryption are you using to, you know, do you have a fire extinguisher next to your server rack? And so these are all like reasonable questions to some degree, but it's very, very difficult to complete an aggregate. So we try and make things like that easier. Um, we work with the security team at the agency really closely and then you know work on finding places to standardize or where we can offer shared services and this kind of thing. So my work's very behind the scenes, you know, and my the user research that my team does is a lot of interacting with internal stakeholders, whereas our products and platforms that are offered externally might as well as the consulting, you know, we'll talk to actual sort of public end users. I think anybody who's listening who has gone through the the FedRAMP process initially um, and has all the the bumps and bruises and scars that go along with it, getting all that wisdom can probably appreciate probably the types of, of compliance measures you're having to, to work with. What does that look like when you're inside the government though? So we're being, being outside and we are working with the FedRAMP PMO at GSA, right? And, and as you're kind of running down some of these compliance measures, we're kind of on the outside looking in, but when you are a part of government and you're looking to drive these innovations forward and, and also comply with the same standards, what does that look like? Is it very different? Well, it's just two sides of the same coin, really. So, you know, FedRAMP is one of the TTS programs. So their team I actually support as well as am a user of. So the teams that we support in the technology portfolio 
across TTS, they're trying to use various cloud service providers for you know collaboration tools or hosting or whatever else. And so my team will work with the vendors as well as FedRAMP to get them in uh, to be you know authorized. And there is an agency level authorization process, but getting through FedRAMP is even better because that makes it available sort of across government and um, you know provides like a more standardized compliance framework that you know has then wider benefit. So because TTS uses a lot of tools that are new to government, you know, we're both helping vendors kind of understand what that process is like and what the benefits might be, uh, providing you know guidance around how we administer various tools, so other agencies can then you know sort of use that from our public-facing handbook, for example. And so, yeah, we're we're sort of pulling more and more new tools in, which can hopefully then benefit other agencies. I've had numerous government uh, C-levels and, and director levels come in. And one of the things that I, I've seen a pattern um, across is their desire and and need, honestly, for the private sector to act more like a partner with them and really understand exactly what their, their challenges are and, and what their needs are instead of coming and just selling to them. And in your capacity at TTS, and you guys are driving a lot of this innovation and you're working and you mentioned technologies that aren't even available in government right now, how have you been able to kind of bridge that, that gap and work with the private sector in, in a more of a partnership capacity? Yeah. So TTS, I'd say thinks of our acquisitions in two sort of buckets of, you know, products versus services. I think other agencies is a little more fluid between those, but you know, either we're buying a tool, and so we'll be working with uh, that vendor in the sense that you know we need to sort of help them through the security compliance process and that kind of thing. But and you know, talk to them about our challenges and using it and that kind of thing. But mostly, you know, the ideal is that it ends up mostly self-service, right? That we're able to use a software as a service tool mm-hmm. that you know we can configure ourselves and you know, click around and do it things that we need to and not you know, require a lot of customization and that kind of thing. Uh, services uh, is where I'd say the partnership ends up being even tighter because this might, you know, look like hiring on a product team and mm-hmm. you know, having them actually building custom code for us. So, you know, as well as like performing all the user research and design and all those things that go along with it. So that's, I'd say, where the partnership comes even is much stronger, you know, and there's much greater need for it. And that's, you know, they were sort of building something from scratch as opposed to picking something off the shelf. How much is adoption an issue for you guys, especially internally? If you're if you're pulling in some of these emerging technologies and and you're trying to drive adoption across across government, is that something that you guys focus on from a strategic standpoint as you're as you're doing this? Yeah. So my team's focus is internal, you know, my specific team. So mm-hmm. Adoption across government isn't, you know, a metric that we look at. It's a sort of positive externality. Um, we're trying to solve problems for TTS, but do so in a way that can benefit people outside. So we're not going to go like terribly far out of our way to evangelize or, you know, create guidance for other teams and that kind of thing. But we will, you know, in getting something uh, authorized for use, we'll try and get it through FedRAMP so that other teams can use it. In you know, writing up our 
policies and procedures, we'll put them in our public handbook instead of you know locked away in a private document somewhere. And so other agencies can come across those and and use them even without you know asking us. And you know sometimes they'll reach out and have clarification questions and that kind of thing. But you know it's just that like small little bit of extra effort of putting things out where they can be of benefit to other agencies, but without us having to invest a lot of extra time. And that's just, you know, so the nature of my team and the priority being serving the teams within TTS. And that makes sense. It, honestly, if you look at adoption, uh, it can't be adopted unless, unless it's compliant, right? So you guys are actually probably running down some of the harder pieces to drive adoption, the actual ability to use um, versus the, the kind of evangelizing the actual product and benefits and things of that nature. So makes complete sense. So that was, you know, speaking about my specific team, which is the technology portfolio, but you know, other eight, other parts of TTS have a lot more external engagement that they do and pay a lot more attention. So FedRAMP, for example, tracks what agencies are leveraging, you know, the authorizations that, that they give. And so a big driver for FedRAMP is reduce cost through reuse. And so that would be an example where they're doing more of the evangelizing and my role is to just sort of get more things in that pipeline. Uh, I want to pivot a little bit. And it, throughout the course of the pandemic, I think it's it's brought to the top um, governments looking at citizen experience and uh, employee experience as well. I mean, it, just the experience and how people are interacting with technology um, has become really important, especially in the the remote and now hybrid kind of work environment that we're in. How much is CX and EX something that your team is focused on at TTS, either before COVID or especially even now after? So first, I think it's you know useful to define the acronyms um, if we didn't already, which is customer experience and employee experience. So. Obviously, COVID placed huge new stresses on technology and government in general, not to mention everything else across the world. Um, just as an example, federal sites saw an increase of 57% uh, in, in terms of visits between March 2020 and 21. So it's not that the needs changed exactly, right? The sites needed to be accessible before the sites needed to be performant before the nights the sites needed to be plain language before but the pandemic brought a increased emphasis on those things just because that was the main way that people were interacting you know these government offices weren't open you couldn't go in person so it, you know the concerns are the same, but but there's increased emphasis. I'd say. What one of the things that I've kind of spoken about is for government organizations to not confuse UX with CX or EX, and and not focus on perhaps just the interface, right? But the really the value behind the scenes. And one of the ways that we're seeing that kind of being driven is is the adoption of technologies around process automation and AI. How much is that a piece of what you're looking to build on behalf of your your stakeholders from an experience standpoint? Really, kind of putting an engine behind what that experience is—is is that something you guys are focused on at TTS? Absolutely. So, a term that we've used to talk about the, the sort of more holistic thing, I think, akin to customer experience, is, ser is service design, right? So, 
with user experience, you know, maybe you're just kind of thinking inside of the box of, you know, how can I make this button text more clear? You know, what mm-hmm. should this sequence of steps on this web page be? That kind of thing. Service design, which is not my area of expertise, I should say. Service design is much more holistic thinking of, okay, instead of just, you know, what should the wording on these buttons be to be the most clear, service design is asking questions like, do we even need this process? Do we have this information from them already? And could we, you know, change what we're asking based on information we already have? And that's minimizing the uh, kind of difficulty for the user to, to complete this process. So that's something that I push um, a lot within the agency of, you know, things like uh, robotic process automation and things like that are, you know, emphasized on efficiency and that's good. But what if we didn't have to automate a bad process? What if we just changed the process, which is cheaper and, you know, has, will have fewer moving parts and thus be less fragile and, you know, saves you from that maintenance. Right. So it's, it's process improvement more generally, and that can be applied to both internal processes as well as external facing ones. One of the things that I think is so important for kind of what your group is doing, um, because the government's needed groups, I mean, like, like TTS, obviously 18F is a, is a stakeholder group of yours, but, uh, you look across DOD and Kessel run and at army software factory, et cetera. And it's the idea around driving innovation. And I think empirically, we've seen across all levels of government, not not even just in the United States, but across the world where process was there. And in their view, to make it better, let's, let's just put technology on top of it, we'll find a way to make it better. And really, what it looks like you're doing, especially with how you you describe service design, and I think it's fantastic is, you're not just throwing technology at the problem, you're taking a look at it from the foundational level up, like you said, do we even need this process? Or if we are going to leverage technology, how can we change this process to make it more optimized? And do you have any examples of groups right now that you're working with that are are doing this really well? Absolutely. Um, the things that TTS brings to these problems generally aren't novel. Um, we're using tried and true technologies from the private sector. Um, we're often highlighting the ideas of existing users and existing stakeholders who might not get listened to otherwise. It's really, you know, innovation in our context is really just about like asking the questions that other people aren't willing to ask and, you know, kind of not taking the status quo for granted. And, you know, I, I think with words like innovation and agile, they do have a risk of alienating the people that are there because if you're the team bringing the innovation, does that mean the existing team doesn't, isn't innovative and doesn't get to do innovation? Right. And mm-hmm. you need those people bought in and, you know, they have good ideas and they probably have been thinking about this stuff for a long time, but maybe haven't been listened to. So I, I try to go a level deeper, you know, even in my terminology of, okay, let's not talk about agile let's talk about delivering value incrementally. Let's talk about incorporating user feedback and that kind of thing. So, you know, the slapping technology on top, same idea of, you know, forget the machine learning. What do you want your sort of outcome to be? What's the challenge you're trying to experience? What's the thing that your staff are having to do that's really tedious? Okay, well, let's find a technology that, you know, alleviates that 
that problem if we can't cut it out of the process in, uh, in the first place. And you've, you've talked a lot about how your team kind of thinks. I think it's, it's you say it's not novel to an extent, but I think in government, it really has been. Um, I know in your background, uh, you've worked in government, but also um, at startup organizations. Is that really what the culture is at TTS, where you're trying to create kind of this entrepreneurial startup environment where you can really kind of drive more agile changes? Yes and no. So I think what, you know, again, to like go level below the the terminology, right, of mm-hmm. I think when people say startup and government, what they mean is the ability to move fast, the ability to experiment, um, you know, clearing out as much bureaucracy as possible, make it make prototypes that can then be quickly tested, these kinds of things. So it's, you know, those things come from the startup world, but have been around for a long time. And the, you know, the, the innovation is really in the, you know, what are the, what are these sort of like places we can carve out in the rules that, you know, govern our agencies that we can do these kinds of things safely and what kind of, you know, sort of blanket approvals can we get to not have to, you know, do as much work every time we, stand up a prototype, right? These kinds of things. So it really takes that, um, that, that startup thinking of the moving fast and then applying it in government is just, you know, how can you carve out that space? <laughs> I think that a big difference is that startups, you know, outside of regu- highly regulated industries like healthcare or finance and that kind of thing um, is they don't have a lot of, external stakeholders or certainly a lot of external like requirements in terms of, you know, rules they have to comply to and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's a lot easier when you don't have to worry about security compliance. It's a Mm -hmm. lot easier when you don't have to worry about, you know, the privacy act and these kinds of things, but um, government is held to a higher standard. And I actually think that's good. The trick is how do we kind of make it efficient to do things safely? I, I think we've heard a lot of people, they talk about risk aversion, right, in, in government. And I think with that has come a little bit of a stigma where government moves slow. Um, it's been one of the reasons why it's been difficult to get, uh, I think, some really talented people in, in positions um, within government. There, there's been a workforce issue. But the thing that I hear over and over again, it's not that government is slow at all. And it's not that they're not innovative at all. It's that they are dealing with taxpayer money. It's not, it's not a, uh, a funding round that they can throw money at problems, et cetera. They need to be very judicious on how they're, they're spending money because this is coming from the pockets of their constituents. Um, so with that judiciousness comes perhaps a little bit more risk aversion. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's something that, I appreciate uh, when there's folks like you in these roles where you're trying to drive innovation, but you're doing it a very uh, judicious way, honestly. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's the devil's really in the details because I've never met anyone who works in government who doesn't take that responsibility seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, But sort of in practice, it's hard to kind of see where those efficiencies can be made. So for example, this comes up a lot in acquisition, right? Of where we're using public funds 
And so we want to be very clear about what we're asking for and you know, put in a lot of protections into our contracts around here's exactly what you have to build and um, you know, here's exactly when you need to do it by and here's exactly how much it needs to cost and you know, it's going to take five years and all of that. Right? All that comes from a good place of wanting to be judicious with public funds and you know see uh delivery of you know exactly what they think is needed unfortunately that waterfall methodology is highly problematic almost always fails right in terms of schedule in terms of budget in terms of you know by the time it's delivered the needs have changed these kinds of things so the nuance is okay despite that coming from a good place it actually is not leading to good outcomes and so in fact, if we spend less time on the requirements up front, right, just focus on what the goals are and sort of how we're going to work, then instead get contracts that are flexible and can deliver value quickly. And that, uh, you know, if it's not working out with a vendor that you can change easily in these kinds of things, right, these lead to kind of lower risk projects and, you know, better relationships with the vendors and, you know, all these things around. And so, you know, that's, that's what leads to a better outcome, but it's hard to see why, you know, well, if I want to be really safe, why wouldn't I just write everything down and therefore, you know, it's all specified and so I don't have to worry about it. And that's, that's difficult to bring people around to. While we're talking uh, on the subject of kind of acquisition and, and technology procurement, you're, especially as you're, you're looking to bring on some of these emerging technologies, what are some of the mistakes that you're seeing being made by, by government organizations when they're looking to procure technology? Are there questions that you think they're not asking? Um, it, do, you, do you think there could be a way to, I don't want to say streamline the process, because it, I think ultimately government needs to have a process that, that drives that transparency. But let's say optimize to, to not speed it up, but provide a better technology outcome for the organization? Um, there's three sort of main problems that we see when it comes to acquisition of technology. And in, in this case, I'm talking about you know, both services and like products and then everything in between. So a big one is buying too much at once. So this is what I was talking about a minute ago with you know, trying to write down all the requirements up front and you know, the acquisition just gets bigger and bigger and more complicated and that kind of thing. Uh, there's also, you know, the risk of getting stuck with a bad vendor relationship um, for a variety of reasons. Um, so instead, you know, trying to embrace uncertainty and, and building contracts to be flexible rather than rigid. Uh, so the second is understanding what's available as commercial off-the-shelf software or COTS. So for let's say a project management tool sure there's a bunch out there you can you know buy it and pretty much use it you know as in, as designed that kind of thing um if however you're a state looking to run an unemployment insurance program well that's probably not something that exists in the market you know off the shelf because there's not many places that need to do that um you end up you know taking a generic commercial tool and customizing it into uh what we tongue-in-cheek call uh, unrecon unrecognizably modified off-the-shelf technology or <laughs> uh, and those have you know less visibility less control with a tool that's suboptimal and you end up having vendor lock-in so that's really not ideal and so 
for those you're you want to look for things for situations where you have a commoditized need right to determine whether you can buy something off the shelf or you know if you need something that is truly custom and that you have control over um you know with that is kind of the idea of over outsourcing so not necessarily in terms of dollars or number of people or that kind of thing but uh you know, we say like, don't outsource your vision. So you need people in-house who can drive the direction and scope of the projects while ensuring quality and meeting user needs, you know, and this can actually supercharge contractors doing good work. You talked about partnership earlier uh, between between vendors and government. That's where that really shines is where you have people on the inside that can, you know, take, take the recommendations they're saying and, you know, bring them to their leadership, that kind of thing. So... You know, you really need to favor user needs over buzzwords. You need to understand the problem before picking a solution. I think that's a that's a difficult thing with, um, you know, sort of the buzzword driven uh, acquisition that sometimes <laughs> happen. Uh, and you know, as a great resource for all of this, ATF put out a great uh, document called the De-Risking Government Technology Guide. So anyone that deals with technology procurement uh, in government should take a look. I think we've always looked at government and said, how can you guys make acquisition better? Um, how can you shorten the process? How can you provide more insights? But I want to flip that on its head a little bit and say, yeah, but but I think both sides of, of this have a responsibility. So I want to ask you, how do you think the private sector can help in the acquisition process? What can, and I'll own this too, what can we provide to to government? What can we do to make this process a little bit easier uh, so there is a better technology outcome at the end of it? Yeah, so I'll answer with a, you know, on a, on a specific angle of it. And so, as I mentioned before, the security compliance aspect is the largest barrier to getting new technology into government at the federal level. So also mentioned, you know, government has a higher bar for security and privacy than a lot of the private sector and even though we're maybe inefficient in how we implement it, it's generally a good thing. And so that higher bar, unfortunately, makes it difficult for startups to meet the requirements, right? Because it's, it's very expensive mm-hmm. to go through and put in all those safeguards and all of this. So we would love to give more government technology dollars to small businesses, especially, you know, uh, ones owned by disadvantaged uh, people from disadvantaged groups and that kind of thing. So my hopes are twofold, which are that both government and then the cloud providers, these tools are leveraging, make it easier to build software that's safe and compliant. I think there's so much room there on both sides. And then for the small companies, just kind of appreciating that we're asking these things for a reason, even if it is slow and, and laborious and these kinds of things. So just appreciating those that those concerns are valid and having you know being willing to put in the time to answer them in order to you know, protect the public's data and things like that and that's one of the reasons why uh, when when I do meet with some of these these smaller groups or I, I've talked to some of these smaller groups I've said the government market is not one that you want to dip your toe in if you dip your toe in you're not going to be successful and I understand that it's difficult to go all in but to be successful in that market, that's what it's going to take. I know I've had 
Megan Metzger on the show, and we've talked about what her group is doing at Decode. How do you see groups like that really helping to not only educate the private sector groups on on what it takes, but also educate the government side uh, to understand what some of these emerging technologies can can bring to the government ecosystem? Yeah, I think that first aspect that you spoke to is really key in you know, these, these startups wanting to sell to government, none of this is intuitive. <laughs> so, no, no, not at all. So, you know, getting, getting the guidance and um, directing them to practices and tools and things like that, that they use that then makes things like the security compliance much easier. Um, so there's so much room there to, you know, for them to make choices that then make selling to government easier later. Uh, this can be in terms of, pricing structures this can be in terms of uh you know security compliance and infrastructure and and all sorts of different aspects um for governments it's tough because you know in a lot of cases it's arguably and this is gonna be a little controversial but it's you know arguably not responsible for government to be putting sensitive data in a system that's run by two people Right, so there is a there is a sort of threshold where you want to make sure that these organizations that are entrusted, you know, with the safety of this information, uh, when when it is sensitive, to you know have a maturity that you know we think that they will you know take protection of that data seriously and you know have adequate protections against you know uh, cyber attacks and these kinds of things. So it's a difficult balance and I, that's where I really want the, you know, I, I want it to sort of meet, meet in the middle of government making it easier to go through those processes by setting, you know, clear expectations and giving more guidance around like, here's what a good, um, you know, answer to the security requirement looks like. And then, you know, making it easier through groups like Decode, uh, you know, through groups like uh, like Decode and other, you know, accelerators, things like that, that they are really guiding these startups to, you know, make choices that make it then easier to get in the door. And we've talked a little bit too about kind of inspirations that you guys have. How much do you look at global governments that are are driving some of these changes? I know not all governments obviously are are privileged enough to have a program like TTS or, or 18F, especially, um, within their ecosystem, but how much do you guys look out and see what global governments are doing and doing successfully, um, and try to envelop that into some of the strategies that you deploy within the, the United States? Yeah. So there's been a big growth of digital service teams and, you know, other sort of digital practices across governments in the past, you know, uh, eight years since I joined mm-hmm. uh, 18F slash TTS. So Taiwan and Estonia are two that are known for their digital first governments. And yeah. Taiwan especially embraces civic engagement more than any other government I've heard about. Um, they actually, you know, work with their kind of civic hacking community. They've um, done a really ha- good job of actually driving entrepreneurial spirits like in the private sector too with some of their government funding i think that's been one of the biggest drivers there as well yeah so it's it's a much more fluid relationship in that Mm -hmm. they i think will take 
uh, and I don't have any inside knowledge here, but you know, based on articles I've read, the sort of developments and, and things built and processes developed by you know their civic engagement communities that are outside of government, and and then bring them in and become official. Mm-hmm. Also, they'll you know be very proactive about you know opening up data and APIs and things like that for groups outside of government to build upon. So there's there's just much less of that wall between the two uh, and that's really inspiring and not something that you know has sort of caught on in the US in a fundamental way that I've seen um, you know there's other there's other groups that you know surely talked about in this show like uh, in the UK government uh, with their alpha gov push you know Canada and Australia also have made big strides in terms of like platform offerings and um, and these kinds of things so yeah a lot of a lot of good work happening out there what do you think? Well, f- let me take a step back. First of all, I'm glad that you're looking outside of the United States. It's not something that we see all the time. And I think there's so much great work happening that can be repurposed um, and, and brought into the strategies being deployed in the US. So that's one. But let me ask this what do you think it would take to get to a more fluid relationship similar to what you described? Um, in Taiwan or even in Estonia where it, it is more fluid unequivocally than what we have here. Do you think that's something that we've set up those barriers or, or what do you think it would take to get there? Yeah. Uh, this is again, not my area of expertise, yeah. but um, you know, just based on where I'm sitting, I think a lot of those protections that federal government at, at at the very least, have in place in order to protect information, you know, of requiring, um, you know, deep levels of background checks and uh, and these kinds of things in order to access our systems. You know, it's it's even unnatural for government to publish like internal facing documentation. I think that's a really big thing at TTS that we have not. Um, emphasized enough is that you know we we make our internal collaboration open and so we'll do things like you know submit a code change through a pull request and people from the outside will chime in sometimes or like leave an issue on one of our repositories and say hey like you know this link is broken or you know i was using this this tool and um you know i think there's a bug here that kind of thing so I would love to see more of government do that of, you know, even if it's not like active outreach to these communities, at least you're making it more possible for them to come in. You know, the, um, the, the tricky thing with like civic hacking groups and things like that is sustainability. So, you know, someone might build something in a hackathon weekend and that kind of thing, but that's a whole different animal than yeah. making it kind of production quality and, and know, owning it long-term and scaling it, you know, not just in terms of traffic, but in terms of like all the different edge cases and these kinds of things. So, um, yeah, I would love to, you know, have a f- more formal engagement where, you know, these, these, these groups can bring things into government and maybe help to um, 
you know, fix problems in us in a short-term basis without like requiring long-term commitment. So for example, uh, 18F did an experiment a few years ago where we were putting up specific bugs um, in various, you know, software that we built and we were doing like micro purchase awards, uh, they were called. And so, you know, in government under $10,000, you can make a purchase that is far less um, burdensome, you know, to, to get through approvals and whatnot uh, because of the low dollar value. So we would, you know, post things that we, you know, believe are, are fixable in a relatively short amount of time and people could bid on, okay, I'll, you know, I'll fix that for $6,000 or something like that. And, you know, this is cuts out the acquisition, uh, you know, timeline and, and cycle, but it also, you know, allows more like individuals to, to get involved, not just like big vendors. So that was a sort of interesting angle to come, come at it from like the acquisition side. And I would love to see more, more things like that. So before I give you a chance to, to give some final thoughts, it, you brought up 18F and recently I had Ayushi Roy who is kind of heading up the state and local, she's the co-lead heading up the state and local uh, practice for 18F. And we had a good conversation around digital equity. And I think that's something that's really come up with, especially the pandemic. Um, as you look at certain rural areas uh, at certain states and local localities, and their ability to access certain things. How much do you take a look at the equity of your digital output as you're looking to drive these innovations forward? Yeah, I mean, Ayushi will say it much better than I can, but you know, I, I listened to that episode actually, and you know, the equity can come in a lot of different ways. So for external facing services, it can be you know, small businesses wait, wading through burdensome processes. So, you know, in terms of the acquisition or security compliance uh, that we've talked about already, uh, obviously there's, um, you know, equity for individuals of, you know, the more government services you need, the more effort that you have to put in, right? And this, these are usually going to be people that are, you know, from least advantaged populations and therefore have, you know, multiple jobs and, you know, don't have childcare or whatever else, right? Um, that then, you know, it, it's expensive being poor, I think is a uh, expression I've heard for that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need to take that into consideration when we're asking for, you know, people to fill out yet another form for yet another, you know, public benefit and that kind of thing. And how can we, how can we really streamline to, you know, not require the extra effort for people to get things they need? Um, so that's all on the sort of you know external facing side, but the equity can come into play internally as well. So for example, like we saw with the pandemic, the government staff who had families that you know their kids weren't able to go to uh, school or daycare, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, these poor parents just like yeah. you know, trying to like entertain their uh, you know kids with one hand and <laughs> and trying to like you know type up meeting notes with another. It, it's just impossible. So yeah, I think I've spoken a number of times about how lucky I was with my teacher or my wife being a teacher and, and being able to take on some of that for, for me, because we had both kids home for a long period of time and it, it's challenging. It really is. 
and it disproportionately affected women, right? Like, mm-hmm. f- uh, you know, way more women dropped out of the workforce. Uh, well, I, I, I actually just did an interview to talk about yeah. what the what the new normal looks like, and I actually said that's the the ability to actually work remotely. I think is going to be something that will hopefully help uh, women because you're not going to have the work life balance issue that you might have potentially had before. Yeah, this it just it disproportionately was, you know, difficult for people who had child caring duties, which are, you know, often often women and um and these kinds of things. You know, the the government hiring uh, is another facet, like that being slow and burdensome, favor people who can afford the time. Um you know, government interactions being increasingly digital favors people who are comfortable with technology and have good network connections and have good eyesight, these kinds of things. You know, there's just so many different facets and all of them are counterable, but it takes a lot of work. And, you know, TTS spends a lot of time thinking about these both internally and, you know, in the products we build and in the consulting we do. But I hope others, you know, listening, you know, have that, have that appreciation and, you know, bring that kind of thinking to whatever they're working on. When I think that's great that we have a, a group within government that is giving thought to some of these, not just technology issues, but but cultural issues and workforce issues, et cetera, and kind of combining everything. So I think that's fantastic. Um, Aiden, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners today? Yeah. Um, don't get caught up on buzzwords. You know, when you say agile, think about what you're actually looking for uh, beneath that. When you say, you know, you want machine learning, think about what you're actually looking for or whatever else. Um, appreciate the, you know, sort of public servants who, who exist in government and value their expertise. Uh, don't, you know, write them off as, you know, being the old guard and that kind of thing. Um, kind of respects like the flexibility that the pandemic has forced us to have, you know, and the this proving that it's possible to you know for people to work remotely and have flexible schedules and all that, those kinds of things should just continue. And um, you know, while maybe not everyone loves working from home, I think that flexibility and sort of trust of you know people can make choices for themselves about where they're going to be most productive and what their hours can be, that kind of thing. I, I hope that you know managers and leaders can take that to heart. This has been a great conversation. Thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Shittestrayb. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.